to How I Did It, where coders philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. My guest today is Order Exel, founder of the Adara Group and CEO of its Australian companies. Originally from New Zealand, Audette describes herself as a social activist. However, her career began more traditionally as a lawyer specialising in international finance. Audette enjoyed a really successful career as an investment banker which took her all over the world. At one stage, she was managing director of Bermuda Commercial Bank, chairman of the Bermuda Stock Exchange, and she served on the board of the Bermuda Monetary Authority. Taking her skills as a lawyer and investment banker, Audette then established the Adara Group as a social enterprise. And over the last 20 years, Adara has proved the power of business to improve the lives of people in poverty. Audette's work has been recognised many times. In 2013, she was awarded an Honorary Order of Australia for Services to Humanity through the Adara Group. She's also been recognised by Forbes as a hero of philanthropy. In 2015, Audette was inducted into the Australian Businesswoman's Hall of Fame and was a recipient of a world-class New Zealand award. Then in 2016, Philanthropy Australia named Audette as Australia's leading philanthropist. I found this conversation really enjoyable and I hope you will enjoy it just as much as I did. Please enjoy this episode of How I Did It. Welcome Audette, how are you doing today? Yeah, good, thank you. I'm really pleased to be here chatting to you. Good, yeah, likewise. It's it's fantastic to finally be here and have this conversation, so thanks for making the time. Um, I'm going to say this first comment with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek. If I look at your life, you're an investment banker who moved to the Middle East just before the Gulf War and later <laughs> founded an organisation called ISIS. <laughs> right. One of your school teachers reflected on your career choices, then apparently said... Um, that she she did feel you were her great hope and how disappointed she was in your career choices. Right. So assuming that's true, the first question is, how have you recovered from all of that? Yeah, right. I mean, you just uncovered my darkest secret. <laughs> that's <right>. actually. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, you know, you know that 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 piece of your journey where you say not funny yet. You know, we went through in terms of the the name change from yeah. ISIS to Adara. Quite a period where we're in not funny yet, but we we kind of made it out the other side. You couldn't make um, it up. I've always thought that there'd be another career I could have now in business, which is talking in marketing schools about what it's like to have your brand taken over by <laughs> people right. who do horrendous things in the name of um, fanaticism. Yes. Um, and actually, for us, it was not funny yet for quite a period because ISIS. You know, who's a great goddess, the goddess of motherhood mm. and fertility, Egyptian goddess of motherhood and fertility. You know, in that name, we'd spent 15 years working with some of the most vulnerable people and kids in the world, including for a period of time working with kids. We have 136 kids who are our cornerstone kids that we pulled out of trafficking. And one of the first things that we do with a kid of, um, in that situation when we... Um, finally connect with them and say, you know, you have a family of origin and we're going to do everything we can to find them. But from this day forward, you have a second family and it's the ISIS family and you're now an ISIS kid. So <laughs> we have these drive. kids who... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we have these kids who, who very much see themselves as part of the ISIS family. Anyway, the good yeah. news is they, they are old enough now to understand why we, they're now part of the Adara family. Um, but it's good to be on the other side of that change. Fantastic. Can you, can you start uh, this conversation again from a, a slightly more serious note and say, 
um, something about your early years. How did you How did you start off in life? You, you grew up in Dunedin, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Born, born and bred lucky Kiwi. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up in a place where you never ever got up in the morning and wondered if there's going to be enough food on the table, whether there's going to be education and health, um, whether you would be safe. And and that, I think that profound influence on my life actually, um, just the sense of just a recognition, even when I was a little girl, that if I was a little girl born somewhere else, it would be entirely different. Um, another big piece, I think, of the early pictures of, of my, the puzzle of my journey, if you like, is that my dad was a journo, mm. and so for a period of my early life, we were in, based in Singapore, he was reporting on the Vietnam War. Mm. And um, being a little blonde kid with blue eyes um, in Asia in the 60s, you know, if, if you mm. ever want to get a visceral understanding of what it feels like to be different, um, you know, that's the way to do it. And on top of that, of course, if you want to understand how wonderful it is to be in, in a place where everybody comes from somewhere else, multiculturalism, you know, writ large, mm. that's Singapore um, in the 60s. So, um, so I think that also really informed my view about, you know, being a lucky little girl in a global world. Yeah, it sounds like even just early on you had very different perspectives. So I think that's, I think that's really important. You know, you've got one very different perspective in New Zealand to the one you've had in Singapore. Right. I think the combination helps you, yeah. helps you enormously, doesn't it? But yeah. when I, when I um, was preparing to come and talk to you today, the other thing that um, stood out in terms of your early years was um, from all the comments you've made elsewhere, how your parents yeah. influenced you massive and um, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that particularly because that's a theme that's come out in some of the, sh the, the episodes we've done today David Gonski talks about that talks mm. about the work of his father Beck Scott um, down in Melbourne talks about um, again how she was profoundly influenced by that um, so how's that in uh, tell yeah, us a little bit about that that's massive you're right and actually sort of side thought on that you know I think um, yeah, gratitude it sort of completely infuses my journey. If you, you know, if you realise that you're standing on, you're born lucky, standing on uh, the sort of foundation of um, support, um, uh, everything unfolds from that, right? If you're grateful, um, and and so one of the reasons I'm profoundly grateful for my life, not just the accident of my birth, but the accident of the parents that I was mm. born to, you know, amazing people. Um, my dad, um, who was this kind of really crazy, out-of-the-box thinker, um, uh, was actually raised um, uh, in a very strict religious uh, sect, if you like, um, and which he rejected. This is where the ISIS and thing came from. <laughs> <laughs> There's a theme running it's through a this, theme. right? Exactly. <laughs> anyway, what that gave him, I think, he was an incredibly open-minded um, man, and you know, he used to say to us kids. Um, you know, he was totally opposed to groupthink. And so his message to us kids was always, you know, if you were born in Hitler's Germany, you could have been Nazi youth. And we would say, no, Dad, no, that would never happen. And he would say, you know, never underestimate, you know, the power of groupthink. Mm, and question, 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 mm. accepted orthodoxy. And so if you look at the, my journey, I guess it's a journey that's out of construct. And I think largely it comes from that, you know, profoundly set at the centre of who I was as a little girl. And then I have a mother. So I had this wonderful open-minded father who taught us to think and think again. And then I have this mother who intuitively understands that, um, and, you know, as, and, and, you know, intuitively and expressly understands that who you are as a human being, your success as a human being is about how much you give to people rather than how mm. much you take. 
and she's one of those natural givers so whether it's you know knowing that the neighbors need something or something's happening in community or standing up you know recently she she was standing up and um, you know giving someone what for you know at a, um, a a town meeting where somebody was speaking against LGBTI people mm. you know she just knows what's needed at the right time yeah. and so the definition in our family of what being a successful human being was was about think outside of the box and you know a give to society in some way give of yourself and if you give that that's your frame mm. how wonderful is that right? well they might have been needed in the 60s in New Zealand but I, I think they're, they're even more needed now those kind really of approaches don't you think? and it's starting to get harder now actually I was watching this amazing YouTube clip I don't know if you saw it this extraordinary young woman refusing to sit down on an aeroplane. Yeah. Awesome. And, and, I, it's, and I recommend it to everybody to watch it because people start to put pressure on her and say, sit down, sit down. You know, she's, she refuses to sit down till a refugee who's being transported back to Afghanistan is offloaded. Mm. And the courage that it takes to stand against, mm. you know, groupthink, um, when people feel inconvenience is massive and and to me it was all captured in the the tension that you feel as you watch this incredibly brave young woman and it's getting I think for a period now it's always been hard but I think for a period now it's going to get harder yeah and you were taught to it sounds like from my my um reading before today that you were taught to speak up from a very early age yes was... <laughs> yeah <laughs> something tells me it wasn't that hard no. why are you laughing <laughs> yeah no the reason I laugh is my mother if she listened to this would be going oh she was yeah. a nightmare <laughs> so um, yes, I mean, we're taught to um, stand up for what we believe in um, mm. and, you know, that integrity sits at the heart of everything. Um, and, of course, being the daughter of a journalist means, if you're lucky enough, your house is full of interesting people, um, you know, whether they're peace activists or whether, in my case, you know, New Zealand Maori, which my father was you know, very connect connected to that community, uh, very lucky for us, um, you know, whether it's astrologers who he happens to be interviewing at the time you know our house was kind of a train station for interesting people with interesting views mm. um, and you know it was all about have the integrity to speak your own truth um, mm. there wasn't much that they would come down um, hard on us kids about other than respectfulness you know mm. I can remember it being said to us you know my children will respect person who's living in the streets to at exactly the same level they'll respect the queen and the king you know mm. it was really drummed into us um, and of course the other key thing and I guess it ties to respect was bigotry it was considered to be discrimination in any form you know that was an absolute non-starter if mm. you wanted to really get in trouble mm. open your mouth and say something you know that spoke against a group of people and, and our household so there are a good set yeah. of rules right yeah, yeah. for a kid to stand on and I think well, that not too many what not too many and I think you know the final thing was um, because we're very well loved you know I felt the sense of I, I can remember in my early days when I sort of launched into this career that where I didn't know what I was doing and I used to think oh my god I'm you know I would <laughs> sit and drink a lot of cheap red wine and cry at night about how I didn't know what I was doing and <laughs> ring home um, and, and at its worst you know I used to think well if it all goes to shit you know if, if <laughs> it'll be you know, this is, you know then my mum and dad will still love me and the sun will still rise yeah. And it was this sort of permission to fail, you know, standing yeah. on that foundation. And, I, you know, I think if you can give that to people, you know, permission to fail, know that you are loved. Mm. And that doesn't have to be from your immediate family. That can come from anywhere. Family is a very broad context in my view. Boy, you know, that sets people free to do amazing things. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the failure 
the, the permission to fail and the, the knowledge that failure is not the end yeah. is, is quite liberating, yes, isn't it? Yes, it's really liberating. You know, also the other thing that's liberating, and I worry about this for kids that are swept into, um, you know, you have to get these marks. It's mm. incredibly competitive because the other message that I very much had in my childhood was it doesn't matter what you do. It just matters that you do the best that you can. You know, mm. you can be the best cleaner in the world. Mm. You know, you can be the best mum in the world. You can be the best astronaut in the world, nuclear physicist. It didn't matter. What mm. matters is, you know, what intent you brought to that and what effort you brought to it. Mm. You know, and how decent you were as a human being. And so there was none of that pressure around you have to be in the top, top of this or that or get these marks. Or, yeah. I think that's also part of it because otherwise the, the society puts enough pressure on us, right? Mm. Um, if, if your family are loading pressure on about very narrow definition of success, it's a real battle to break out of that cage. Mm. So for us, there wasn't a cage, there was a platform. Yeah, and then um, obviously for it sounds for different reasons. You then pursued what was quite a traditional career path in terms of law and investment banking, and you had an amazing um, career. Let's talk about it as if it's finished, because I think you, you're in a different different <laughs> yeah. place now. But yeah. but um, but that was a remarkable kind of chapter of your career. Yeah, it was. A, that was a really that. conscious choice, actually. It was kind of a you know. It's I find it incredibly funny. You know, I'm well, I'm on the board of Suncorp, so you know I have to mm. wear suits and. <laughs> high heels and try and look like I, you know, get up in the morning and say, do I look like a grown-up business person, you know, enough of a grown-up to go into this, walk into this boardroom. Um, uh, and the funny thing for me is that there are quite a lot of people in my orbit now who think that I'm a businesswoman who decided to give back. Yeah. Um, but the people who know the truth of me know, actually, I'm a social activist, born and bred, yeah. who woke up at the end of a law degree and realized, okay, if I'm going to affect change, I need to learn power and capital. And that was a huge step out of my tribe to make that decision. Mm. Um, it was a very, I think there's very few choices you really make in life. There's awful lot of life we just go that along. That you tumble into. That was a, yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah. for me, it was a real choice. Um, and, and it was a really good choice for me in terms of learning about an area of the world, you know, power, capital, money, the markets, that was just this black hole in my knowledge. Um, and so it was great for a few reasons. One, mm because it filled a bit of that black hole of knowledge in, but two, if you, if sometimes you don't realize you're in a tribe and you also don't realize how prejudiced you are. So I had massive prejudice against, you know, the world of capitalist pig dog mm. bastards, if you like. <laughs> and, and so, you know, when I stepped out, you can't be you know, yeah. <laughs> well, I stepped into it and, you know, thinking I was a spy in the enemy camp and mm. woke up and realized, mm. oh my God, there's values, there's integrity, there's intellect. Mm. You know, Those I lies. love a deal, you know, um, and gee, I've been so prejudiced. Yeah. And, and you know, that kind of for, has formed the basis of a life where for me, you know, engagement is where my tiny piece of the puzzle is trying to stand in engagement, stand in the middle yeah. um, between, you know, the activist community who I love and respect. And I, you know, I think we should never, never stop yelling from the highest hills about social change, but right across to the other side of that, yeah. you know, power and capital and my little piece is to stand in the middle. Um, because I profoundly believe we're not going to change the world unless we reach across that divide and stop yelling at each other. Mm. Um, so, so that was the first big step, yes, into that kind of. Into yeah, the it's other funny. Side. Funny you say that because when I again I was uh, looking back at your, uh, you know, how, how you got to where you are today, um, it seemed to me it wasn't written anywhere, but it seemed to me that you were a person who was that social activist with a social conscience uh, and used to speaking out. 
and then what the for-profit business corporate world did for you is kind of show you a way that you could realize your ambitions and do what really mattered to you right so it it, it kind of unlocked the potential for you to go off and do stuff yeah. stuff that mattered more to it, you it, is that right? it, yeah it filled in a hole in my knowledge mm. and and it allowed me to think i'm incredibly interested in power i think if we want to affect social change we have to understand social change is about power shift and so it filled in my knowledge about that piece of the power mm. um, uh, of the structure of society. And yes, it gave me some tools, um, and which I'm incredibly lucky to have in terms of being able to you know, generate revenue, for instance, and, mm-hmm. and understand the way that money moves yep. to, you know, to a certain extent in the world. Um, so and speak it, the yeah. language of money as yeah, well. Like you have it, to be it, able to like it, yes. buy or try And Which it? is also, of course, you know, it's funny because don't we all do this? We love to dress up our field of knowledge, you know, as if it's more clever than anybody else's yeah. field of knowledge, you yeah. know, and acronyms and all the rest of it. Yeah. And actually, the language of money. Money is nothing but an IOU. Even a banknote is just an IOU mm. um, between the issuer of the note and the person who carries it's it promise, around. Yeah. Right? It's a promise to mm. pay. And, and all versions of money... Um, or financial transactions at IOUs that are dressed up in complexity to make people feel <laughs> like they're smarter than they are um, in the same way that I think that happens in every other profession. But I, again, coming back to my little piece of the puzzle, I guess it's about trying to knock down barriers and obstacles. You know, in fact, if I think about it, you know, I've spent my whole life trying to think about bringing down, you know, silos and bridges, mostly in my own thinking. Yeah. And, and, and realizing that you have siloed thinking and you have walls up against you know, other ways of looking at things, it's just such a limitation. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's just such an interesting journey to be able to constantly be questioning that. Yeah, yeah, it's like a snake shedding its shed. Yes, skin, yeah, it? that's right. Continually almost reinventing yourself yes. and removing that Stay skin, curious, right? Whatever that skin um, is that holds you. Yes, yeah, I think that's or, right. You know, or, that or whole cage we wrap around ourselves. You know, I've said, you know, to people, God, we're all standing in this cage. Mm. I think, you know, and we have different cages depending on what our ethnicity is or our gender mm-hmm. or our personal experience is. But actually, for most of us, the cage door is open. Mm. And, and But we're just too scared to step out of it. Yeah. Um, and so we stand in the cage that society and all our construct makes for us. So when you actually have, are brave enough or are lucky enough to be able to step through, out of the cage and stand, yeah. you know, yeah. you're out with your arms in the air, yeah. suddenly you see, wow, there's so much out here. Yeah, I want to get into that a little bit, actually, because um, I think that the way I've heard that is, I, th- I think it's Plato's cave allegory where the person in the dark cave feels safe. Ah. There's this bright light shining through this gap, but they don't know what's out there, and it seems terrifying, so they stay in the cave. Ah. But if only you were to crawl out, it's the whole world out there. Okay. It's kind of the same yeah, like idea, that. right? Ah. Um, yep, that's beautiful. But, so we kind of... The, we're, it's not like you say that we're not really in a uh, in a prison. No, it's a prison of our own making. Yes, um, but really, what you're talking about is things like bravery and courage. Yes. And I saw that in your commercial um, investment banking legal career. Yeah, even though that seems more traditional, I saw it in the sense that you moved around and you took on new challenges mm. and you 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 were prepared to stop something that probably was very successful and felt comfortable, and then you might go to Bermuda or Hong Kong and you. Uh, that's what stood out to me, and it stood out to me particularly because um, of the idea of kind of jumping off and yeah. taking another risk, being yeah. prepared to fail, but you know, but going on that adventure and being prepared to take, have the bravery and the courage to take a chance, yeah. which is for me personally something I had to learn. A mentor said to me in an early mentoring session, um, 
tell me about a time you've just you know taken that leap. And I, I, I left. And I, you know, I thought I actually in, in the business concept, I haven't. I've mm. never done it. So I've since done it. Right. And I found it gets easier as you do it. Yeah, it does. Um, which is very, very liberating again. But um, how have how have you found that? How have you found the taking of chances and taking of risk? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, we all sit somewhere. Um, on the sort of risk-taking spectrum mm. um, and at different places at different times in our lives maybe. Um, but I've probably spent a lot of my life on the far end of risk-taking. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that comes back to what we started talking about, which is having a foundation you know, where you're well-loved and you're able to fail and you've been taught to think out of construct because a lot of the, the noise of, oh my God, don't do that, that comes yeah. to a lot of people didn't come to, to me. Um, so, so that helped me take risk. Mm. Um, I th one of the things I do feel about, I do think you're right, courage is a huge piece of it. Um, and it's one piece that I'm prepared to sort of own and take some level of credit for. There's a whole lot of credit that's been given to me that I really feel quite discomforted by because actually Adara and the whole journey, the last 20 years, is actually the story of thousands of astonishing people yeah. who've come together, you know, to stand with, you know, the power of a good idea maybe and the power of a, yeah. an early risk. Um, and, I, and so I don't feel comfortable about taking credit for all of that, um, but I do feel that if there's one thing I'll say, it's that I feel proud that I've been brave. Yep. Um, and I think one of the things about being brave too is that people equate courage with sort of this fearlessness, and I, and I don't. I mean, I, feel, I have felt fear my whole life. Um, you know, I'm a woman, um, that, that brings a level of fear, you know, whether that's physical fear or um, emotional, psychological, whatever it is. Um, and there's been plenty of times where I've stood in front of big open doors and thought, oh my God, or mm -hmm. dead, you know, what is on the other side of this? <clears throat> but I've always felt the urge to step through the door. Mm. Um, and mm. as I've got older, the great thing is <laughs> I'm 55, right? So once you've done it multiple times, you know, it's like getting out the door of an airplane. I was a skydiver for years and years, so I did just short of a thousand parachute jumps. Wow. Once you get out the door of the airplane a few times, you know, it gets less and less scary. Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel, yep, I'll own that. Um, I, you know, I've been brave, but I haven't been brave in a way that is fearless. I just feel that if we're going to affect change, we have to kind of acknowledge the loud voice of fear, but then we just have to step forward. Yeah, and well, stepping forward is sort of obviously a theme in your life. I agree. Bravery, there's nothing brave or courageous if you're fearless. Because right. you didn't have to overcome anything. Right, so there's no right. courage involved, was yeah. there? Um, I think for a lot of people, that's the key, isn't it? It's, it's being almost like you said before, being given the permission or giving yourself the permission to, to, to be courageous right. and take that step, yes. knowing, that, knowing that failure is not Yeah, and actually, you know, being, being compelled to, I mean, and I feel, I mean, mm. I guess, you know, in life, you, you try to find something, you, you should do what you're passionate about. Mm. I am angry on behalf of the poor, and I have been every single day that mm. I can remember being a thinking adult. I am absolutely passionate about inequity and injustice, and I feel that um, I could not look at myself in a mirror if I didn't get up every day and try to do a tiny thing, my own thing about it. Yeah. So I also have felt my whole life, oh my God, I'm so lucky if I was a little girl somewhere else, how would my life be? And I know that there are hundreds of millions of women and girls that don't have the same chances that I have. Mm. So, and I'm safe. So the fear I have is nothing compared to the fear, you know, of a woman or a girl, mm. you know, who's being raised in different circumstances. So. 
it, there's not only the okay, be brave, step through. There's the oh my god, I have to be an brave. Obligation almost. It's an obligation. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know what? What? Who do you want to be? What is this life? Yeah. Um, how do you answer the question of what did you do when you had the voice and the ability and so many others for no good reason other than you know accident of birth don't. So, so coming back to the kind of thread of the of your life so far, you took a, a sharp turn. And, and to the right. I'll, I'll say yeah. it. Like you said. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, right. Um, and effectively, you didn't want to make the rich richer and you wanted to. And I, that resonates with me because I, my career came from traditional wealth management. And then I got an opportunity to be involved in charitable foundations, helping people set them up and, and run ones that had already been set up. And I found it much more rewarding. And uh, so that was a small, compared to you, it was a small shift, but I said, that's the only thing I want to do within mm. that industry. So I stayed within the industry, but I did, I did that. Um, but it was it was a different equation for me. It had a lot more meaning and um, satisfaction. Yeah, good it. on you. So you've yeah. done that, you know, in a, on a grand scale. Can you just stop before we get into how you've done that? And just tell, let people know um, how the model works for Adara. Uh, and why you think it works. Yeah, sure. So it is a, it's funny, isn't it? We're trying to write the elevator speech for Adara. Yeah. <laughs> it's taken us 20 yeah. years to try and figure it out, but let yeah. me give it a go. So you know, the Adara group um, is actually a very simple concept. It's a um, now quite large international not-for-profit that services 50,000 people directly a year who are people who are living in extreme poverty. Um, and um, that work has two areas of specialty, and that's maternal newborn child health, um, particularly care to preterm and low birth weight babies um, in places without electricity, and really, really remote community development work. So our most remote project in the world is 25 days walk from the nearest road. So Adara Development, the international not-for-profit, is quite a big organisation and yeah. does some fantastic work. Deep service and quite big knowledge sharing platform. We also have in the group two businesses, and they're corporate advice businesses, if you like, investment banking businesses, mm -hmm. and they're embedded into the INGO, into the work of the not-for-profit. Mm -hmm. So if you see in this lookout here, and yeah. you know, we've got investment bankers sitting side by side with development specialists. The idea of the corporate advice businesses was I wanted to see if we could find a way to generate revenue to fund our not-for-profit activities mm -hmm. by hiring brilliant bankers to get out there and make money, to, if you like, to lift off the burden of donor-driven work yeah. for the international not-for-profit. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, on, on top of the businesses, so the two little, the businesses are like little engines, you know, running to make money, to keep the financial viability of mm. the INGO um, assured, um, and to allow our development teams to focus really, really hard on the complexity of evidence-based best practice service delivery to people in poverty. And so we're 20 years old, 20 years of kind of a winding journey, hell of a lot of mistakes, but where we are now is we've put $40 million to uh, people in poverty, which we're hugely proud yeah. of. 15 million odd has come out of our businesses. The rest of it has come from amazing partner donors and financial partners that have stood with us. So, so we're an unusual model, yeah. um, and it, but it's a model that I, I feel has some applicability for others and I'm really hoping that others will sort of take from what we've done to kind of do it bigger better and smarter than, than we have. Yeah I, I hope so too I mean every, every business in a sense is a social enterprise and, and what, you, what you've done as a model you say it's unu unusual I think was the word you used but um, there's huge potential there isn't there it solves one of the bigger problems that the traditional charity yes. model has um, with that um, with a revenue base that's very difficult to sustain right 
and it's hard to build up capital reserves because you're expected to spend what you raise from the donors. So the, the, there are real issues there that you're very familiar with. Mm. Um, so the idea of using a, um, a, a, a almost a bona, just a bona fide business model right. um, where people are, are receiving products or services and, pay, and being prepared to pay for it and then just making sure that that money then goes to goes a completely to different exactly. person and different kind of work. Yep. Um, there's no reason why that can't be replicated. No, absolutely. And in fact, there are, you know, thanks, thank God for the millennials and the Gen Ys, they're yeah. doing brilliant versions of the same theme. Um, so, and it's interesting as we, you know, you're very much in the world of impact investing and social impact and the social business movement. And a lot of the push mm. of that movement has been about let's teach not-for-profits how to make money, uh, you know, with the service deliveries and the assets they've got, which is all well and good. I mean, just bookmark a couple, in parenthesis, a couple of pieces around service delivery to really vulnerable client groups off the, who are off the development ladder and making sure that they still get service. Not, not every client group can generate wealth yeah. or money to pay for service delivery. Bookmark that for a second. So there's that part of the movement. But the part, part of the movement that I'm really particularly interested in, or I think our, our piece fits in, is using businesses that sit in the flow of money mm-hmm. and using those businesses to support the yeah. other side. Yeah. So, so our, and we're not about teaching villagers how to grow food to sell. That's great. That's other people's gig. Yeah. We're about essential service delivery to people who live on less than two and a half dollars a day. Mm-hmm. And we're about using the tools and the power of the capital markets, the banking markets, you know, corporate markets to generate significant revenue to fund the other side. Mm. So, um, and that's a piece of the equation I think that's we need to talk more about. Yeah. Um, and running a business, you know, our businesses are completely for purpose. So, hundred percent of profits that yeah. they make from, you know, come across. So, we've held integrity right at the centre of those yeah. businesses, yeah. Um, which is critical. But yeah, it's a version on a theme, and it's a model that I'm, um, I'm really interested in models because I think if you do something well, as well as you can, even in a small way, then you set lay the groundwork for someone else to copy you. And, yeah. and that's what scale is for us. Yeah, okay. And um, you just mentioned the term social business. There are lots of different terms that, that float around this kind of conversation. Yep. Social business reminded me, I, I was really lucky and hosted a lunch in a boardroom with Muhammad Yunus, and he talks about social business. Yes. And, his, and, and, I, and I am a huge fan of his, but one thing that I, uh, I, I wasn't sure I could, I could 100% believe was his theory that Every person is, is an entrepreneur and can become a social business um, operator. And I thought, well, I, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can get my head around that quite. I need mm-hmm. to think about that a bit more. But essentially, thinking about you, projecting that point onto you, you've, you've said you had the help from loads and loads and loads of people, but you're the one who kind of led it. You stepped forward, for want of a better mm-hmm. phrase. How, my question is, how have you done that? How do you bring people along around an idea that you've got? Because that's something people would love to learn as a skill. Yeah, that's true. It's funny, you know, to be 20 years in, is, you know, now everything that, that's happened to Adara is reinterpreted as kind of vision and strategy and planning. <laughs> and I think like all good entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of entrepreneurship is, you know, um, stupidity combined with hubris. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, I need to just set the scene on how have we done it. And I done it, we done it, how have we done it? It wasn't, you know, a brilliantly executed plan. Mm. It was a mad passion and a belief, you know, I can do this yeah. um, without any underpinning in fact. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, there's, there's something about the power of a good idea. And there's also something, we talked a wee bit about this um, uh, earlier, about resonant truth. People, I believe, I really believe in the goodness in human beings. I'm a complete Pollyanna. Um, and that's because I see goodness in people. Oh, I see greatness all the time in people. And, and I think that um, in some ways we've created a world where it's quite hard to cater to your own, the, the best of yourself. Mm. And so if you have an idea where people feel, oh God, I could be involved with that and that could be mm. great and I could feel really good about that and that will be the best of who I am, mm -hmm. people naturally are attracted to that. Yeah. And, and so a big part of the story has been, well, I think the key is the resonant truth bit, right? Hold integrity. And that's not easy around money. It's really not easy around mm. money. Mm. Um, but if you do hold integrity, it's amazing how people come out of everywhere to help you. Mm. And that's our story. You know, we, it it's constantly blows me away. People bowl in the door here, really senior people, and say, oh, you know, you don't have a job for me, so I'll come and volunteer for you. Mm. Um, or people track us down. Some random guy is running an investment bank in Seattle sent me a note saying, I read about you, can I help you? Right. You know, it's, it's awesome. But it, and, and so I don't think it's anything I've done except maybe um, uh, set a tone of integrity up with an idea that had legs on its own even if I didn't fully realize that it was such a good idea at the time mm. and then just open the space for people to come into it um, that doesn't discredit what it means to manage an organization it's hard um, and you make a lot of mistakes when you're trying to build organization execution one thing is vision executions a whole nother thing. is it very important as you have the idea to be prepared to break it down reimagine no. it break it down you know adapt pivot yes. here and there and, and and execute you know if I did not know how to run you know <laughs> cash flow on a weekly basis we wouldn't be here um, and <laughs> I had the huge good fortune that comes back to that business Brilliant. sort of underpinning yeah. yeah I ran a bank I got that amazing chance to be responsible for a balance sheet and yeah. I learned yeah. How on earth you do that? Yeah. And, and that's one of my messages to all these brilliant youngsters that want to be social entrepreneurs is great idea, great vision. People will come to help you, but you've got to execute. You've got to know how to cash manage. you actually got to figure out how you're going to manage staff, who the right people are, what the structure is, what the governance is, how your product or service differentiates. Good old business basics. You have to execute. Mm. So, um, and mm. so it's a mixture. Um, of I'm glad both. you said that because uh, uh, particularly once you start talking about Let's just say social issues and you think about traditional charities and so on one of the accusations is often leveled is that oh you can't just do this on passion there is another side the passion from what you've said is absolutely essential and brings people yep. along around an idea and a vision yep. um and you've got to have that but you do have to have that other stuff as well yeah you, you do and you're talking to money and influence and power and you're trying to build management and structure and yeah. something that can endure yeah. then that, that, that that's equally important yeah isn't it? yeah absolutely absolutely so you know there's there's passion, there's power of a good idea, and then there's just good old hard work, execution. And um, and if you don't have those skills, um, then you've got to find people who do have those skills to be able to execute for you. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, that piece is sometimes missed. I'm not a fan of, of sort of capping the brilliance and enthusiasm of great ideas by saying, oh, first of all, go and have a business career and learn. I don't buy that. I mm. think you can learn on the job. You can find the right people to help you, but you have to be prepared 
you know, if you want to build something, you're going to work around the clock. It's going to be hard. You're going to do a whole lot of boring stuff like figuring out general ledger codes um, and understand your regulatory landscape. Yeah. Um, and you've got to be up for that, which is passion informs that. So I was going to ask you how you, how you learn, but you've kind of answered it by saying, <clears throat> I think, you've answered it by saying you learn by doing. You've got to get out there and, and acquire the skills <clears throat> and the experience. Is that right? Right. And I got this amazing opportunity to, you know, I sort of talk my way into my first you know, really big role as a baby lawyer and well, big, mm. big, you know, amazing opportunity to go into Allen's in the early 80s. Um, mm. And then I got to be on the coattails of the people who are absolutely brilliant. And so, you know, keeping your mind open while you go for that ride and just sucking in knowledge. I mean, people can't pay you for what you can learn yeah. when you get those and you opportunities. Can't can't you can't plan. plan to meet somebody. It's, no. It's, and it's, sense, the, it's that thing again, the door opens. Yeah. You know, the partner walks in your door and you're already working, you know, 80 hour weeks and says, I've got another deal, do you want to do it? You know, the answer's got to be yes. Yeah. Um, or, you know, even with the bank, you know, getting offered that job, uh, the chance to, to be the managing director of this bank, you know, filled me full of fear and I knew I was completely ill-equipped, mm. but how can you say no to that? Mm. Um, and but it's interesting, you say that, you know, that the door opened, but... It, there's two sides to every story, isn't there? So it didn't open in the sense that you kind of pushed your way in by the sound of it and kind of, you know, you kind of... You, that, it's a that's mixture. important too, it's isn't a mixture. it? The yeah, door will open, but yeah. what's the, you know, the phrase, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you, yeah. if you advocate for yourself and yeah. you push your idea and you put a suggestion forward and you make an appointment or you make a relationship, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, do, you do have to make, don't you? You, you have, have to, to make brave. it happen. And in fact, I talked to quite a lot of young women about this because, and that is a hot topic of discussion, uh, I think, around women and their careers is that mm. women won't put their hand up to try something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I need another promotion. I'll wait I want until that it's job, offered, yeah. right? Oh, gee, I'm yeah. not quite ready. I, you know, yeah. whatever it is. So that, that's where the courage bit comes yeah. in. So, yes, that's true. You know, I'll own <clears> that. Um, you know, I'm stubborn um, and, and I have. Um, step forward and said, pick me, pick me. Yeah. Um, and even when inside, my, the little voice in my head is screaming, oh my God, what are you doing? You are not possibly able to do this. <laughs> but that's courage again. Um, that's, yeah, the, that's the value yeah, exactly. of courage. In terms um, of how you've done it, yeah, you've pushed yeah. yourself beyond fear. Yes. Well, yeah, you know, through fear maybe. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, <laughs> okay, and, then, yeah. and then, you know, with your, um, and, and then it's just about keep your mind open. You know, see opportunity, learn, um, and stay curious. People are so unbelievably interesting. Like the world is such an interesting place, right? Mm. So if you're able to keep your mind open, you know that life is so enriched. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting in an investment banking deal or you're sitting on the ground in Nepal or Uganda working with midwives or any of the other permutations and combinations of the way that the world unfolds. It's just so incredibly interesting. Mm. Why, two of the things that are interesting, why did you pick international Uganda and Nepal? Why did, why did you pick those um, things as opposed to other things you could pick? There's a million, you know, if, if there, there's a million things that you can do to write injustice. Mm. Um, and I get lots of questions about, you know, doesn't giving begin at, begin at home? Um, and for me, you know, I have a couple of answers to that. One is, you know, well, my home is the world, first of all. I'm a global mm. citizen. Second, you know, um, giving does not end at home as you define mm -hmm. it and it's currently defined I think as our geographic boundaries which you know it's so yeah. you know horrendous um, yeah. so for me um, uh, you know I'm passionate about a whole lot of things but um, human rights and particularly of um, people in remote areas the extreme poor 
you know, it's right at the centre of what drives me. Mm. So I decided, right, that's where I'm going to focus. Yeah. Um, if I had more hours in the day, would I also be um, trying to focus on doing something for asylum seekers? Yes, I would. Or, you know, if I had something to offer in terms of the, uh, the appalling um, position that Indigenous Australians find themselves in, would I be focused there? Yes, but I can't do everything. So yeah. this is just my little piece <clears throat> of the jigsaw, but it, it comes from a, a, a powerful belief, I think, or a passionate belief of mine, that the human rights of people in extreme poverty, um, uh, particularly in the remotest toughest places in the world really really matter yeah and um, we don't it's i think it's it's harder to see that i think it's peter singer's drowning child um uh, story where he gets students to look uh, in the ethics classes around um what you would do if you saw someone right, right in front of you and then he takes yes. it so that it becomes increasingly remote and says well it's still happening right. but it's just out of your yes out of your country it's out of your sight it's out of your awareness yes so how do you how do you kind of deal with gee, that once you become so, aware yeah that's so on point actually i remember <clears> somebody <throat> saying to me a few years ago a good friend said gee or did you know i don't know how you live with like I, maybe i was in some <laughs> intense discussion about people living remotely with hiv or trafficking or something mm. he said god i don't know how you like how do you live with this stuff and i really took me aback and i sort of stopped for a second i said well how the hell do you live with it you know we're in the same <laughs> planet I'm just looking at it um, and you know so once you're looking at it and you're not screening it out you know we all have to live with it we all have to understand it um, and then we go to the place and it to me it actually doesn't matter which piece of the puzzle you pick um, it doesn't it's wonderful whenever you give whenever you try to make the world a better place um, you know that's a great thing this is just our little piece of the puzzle yeah but you know, when you become aware of it, you say, well, what do you do? You've done something, yet stepping forward again is to think, I keep coming back to in my mind in this conversation, that that's the difference in terms of how you've done it. Yeah. You, you stepped forward, you stepped through the fear, you stepped forward in many different yeah. senses. That is critical, isn't Can it? Can I so, tell you a story yeah. about how I came up with the idea? Yeah. Um, so, um, and, and, the way it sort of unfolded for me. So I, first of all, you know, social justice activist at heart and soul my whole life. Secondly, amazing learning career um, to learn about power and capital. And then I found myself in this place where I, it was sort of a bit of a now or never moment. You know, here I've been advising balance sheets. Now I here I am, amazing, running this um, little public company bank. You know, it doesn't get any better than that, right, in terms of learning. Yeah. Um, and I knew at that point okay, now I'm going to have to bring this together somehow, but I didn't know how. So I actually made this huge decision, kind of threw in my life, um, you know, left the bank, left Bermuda, actually left my marriage, even though I was married to somebody that I'm still very, very close to and love very much, came back to Australia having thrown my life in and decided I needed to figure out what the next thing was. And so I had this amazing year. I took a whole year to think about what what, who was Odette going to be next for the next 10 years and what was it going to look like? And I started by thinking a lot about jobs, you know, and I read a lot, uh, I read the mm. paper, Aboriginal Legal Aid, oh, I could reskill yeah. and do that, you know, film finance, well, gee, that'd be interesting, I like the arts. And I realised my head was full of jobs and I, I suddenly realised, oh God, that's just execution, right? That's mm. the end result. Mm. And so I threw out thinking about jobs and I started to think instead and I spent a whole year thinking about what are the pillars of my life going to be? Who do I want to be? And in 10 years, what are the things I need in the kind of matrix of Audet's life to be my best self mm. and to be my most joyous self mm. and to give the greatest contribution I could? So I stopped thinking about the job. 
and I walked up and down the beach, drank a million cups of coffee, laughed with my wonderful parents, and it was incredibly fortuitous because my dad died in an accident uh, a couple of years later, so I had a whole year with him, amazing year. Yeah. And I thought about these kind of issues. What's my relationship with money, really? Mm -hmm. Very easy to talk about that superficially, but I thought about it for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks, deeply, nothing but. What's my relationship with relationships? You know, I just left a marriage. How do I feel about having kids or not having kids? You know, where am I with that? Thought about that really long and hard. Do I want my life to be international or domestic? I love working with people with different cultures, language groups, you know. How do I feel about that? Next one was, you know, do I really want my life to be about giving? Like, it's easy to say and it sounds good, yeah. but I decided I'd let myself really think about it. Mm -hmm. um, I thought really hard about, am I an entrepreneur? Or do I want to make change by moving some major organizations, you know, shifting a big yeah. levers of power? Anyway, long story short, at the end of it, DARA, ISIS, was so obvious to me. So I popped up out the end of this year to all my friends who I kind of <laughs> hadn't seen for a year and said, guess what? I'm going to go back to Bermuda. I'm going to set up a business, corporate finance business. I'm going to embed it into an NGO. I'm going to set up at the same time. We're going to serve women and children in extreme poverty, and we're going to fund it from the business. And they always said, where the hell did you come up with that stupid idea? But it fell out. It was obvious. Yeah. When I ran the matrix of who I wanted to be and what my best use would be. And so in terms of how did you do it and how did you come up with it, once I'd thought it through and given myself permission to really think, um, those big issues, not the little issue of how you actually execute or you know, how, what that actually looks like in practice, but the big issue. Mm. Who are you, who do you want to be? And what will give you the happiest life? Mm. Um, then it became apparent. So then I, I just knew what the answer was and away I went. Wow, that's... <laughs> you must be so glad, apart from talking about, you know, family issues and so on, that, that you'd spent that amount of time being so reflective yes now when you when you reflect again yes we don't we, give ourselves time to think we, well right? that's what i was going to say is it like yeah. you, in a sense so you had the luxury not everyone would have the have that amount of time yeah um, huge well, luxury and i'll tell you what else i come back to a central theme here about fear and courage you know and standing in the cage society tells us that we must not step off kind of the moving train, that we should not step out and take time to think. And what happens when you do that is a whole lot of voices start putting fear on you. People mm. who love you say, oh my God, when are you gonna get back to work? No, I remember one guy told me, <laughs> um, a very senior partner of a law firm said to me that when I stepped out um, earlier in my career, I spent some time traveling on a push bike. Um, so I had a couple of years off work. Um, and I remember he famously said to me, no one will ever take you seriously in your career again. <laughs> Um, and so when I um, uh, became uh, managing director of this publicly traded bank, I clipped out the article in the Financial Times about it and posted it to him. So, so there's a big voice of fear that comes mm. from don't do that, don't take the time. Um, there's also fear from people who really love you, who are really worried mm. when you step out that you know you might go mad or you might never be able to look after yourself really again. really stupid. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so people who love you and also people who are a little bit threatened by of people who make out of context choices or construct choices you get a lot of don't do it don't do it yeah. and then on top of that common sense we're lucky enough i knew i wasn't going to starve i knew that i was you know my mum and dad i could stay in mollymont with them i'd had a good career i was going to be fine um and a lot of people can't make that choice mm. they just got to get up and go to work 
you know, to make money to feed their family. Um, so I was in this very fortunate, fortunate position. Um, by, but I also had to very much refuse to listen to all those voices telling me, oh my God, you can't step down from such a big job and do nothing for a hmm. year. Joe, this time last year, I had uh, I was trying to push through a, 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 to the next level at work. I was trying to add like a roadblock. I couldn't, there was an issue I couldn't kind of seem to solve. And my way of dealing with that, I didn't have um, a year to take off work and start to reflect on it. But my way of doing that was usually to kind of think the problem through. I'll, I'll by thinking, 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 I'll find, I'll mm-hmm. find a solution. <clears throat> and what I did for, for very rare for me was I actually, um, I went the opposite way and thought I'm, I'm going to just stop thinking about it altogether, and I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of create an empty space. Right. And into that space came the solution. Right. You know, I found it a lot easier to actually. I guess that's just that reflecting time. It's not trying to kind of solve a problem. Yeah, it's really true. It's, it's just giving yourself the space to yeah. empty, empty out yes. almost, and then things come to you. There's something, you know, that, that whole neuroplasticity piece, right, about your brain working, being comfortable, working down very narrow pathways. And so if you're sort of forcing yourself to try to, I will think my way to a solution, then I think you're not letting, you're not opening your brain enough and your heart and your soul enough to be able to, to see bigger picture. We're bred though to do that, aren't we? Particularly people, you know, investment bankers, yes. lawyers, you know, people in the finance industry, yes. you're bred, you're bred to, to solve. solve a problem. Do you know, I, I'm a bit of a drawer when I'm trying to think. I'm mm. a terrible artist, but um, when I, the latest business that we set up three years ago, which is another really out of construct, construct model called Adara Partners. So it's mm. an evolution of my thinking about yeah how you use business to affect change and, and it involves a sort of panel of these really senior Australians who are yeah. running mandates pro bono for Adara, front-facing corporate Australia and big deals. Yeah. Um, and as I was starting to come up with the idea, I said to all the team at Adara, I've had this idea and I need to go home and I need to draw it. And so I took a couple of weeks off and I took with me all this big pads and pens and crowns and stickers and I lay all the... Uh, all of this out on the top floor of my mum's house and I spent a week, I just drew this mm, idea. Mm. And then, and of course everybody here thought that I'd got absolutely funny. That was like, oh, she's finally lost it. And then I, um, I <laughs> I'm going home to draw. And then I, I rolled up my drawings and I posted them back to the office and said, fine, uh, 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 you know, a, someone who's an artist. Um, and get these made up commercially because this is what we're going to do next. Right. And then they really thought I'd flipped when they un- un- unraveled pictures with stickers and unicorns and you know wizards and all the rest of it um, because I needed to stop thinking and I needed to start creating. And yeah. it's quite a different thing. Yeah. And and giving yourself the ability to do that, I think you know certainly for me anyway, my best ideas have come when I've when I've been creating and opening and um, not you know, going down the track to solve a problem. So we're almost out of time. Um, we're interested to know what you said towards the start of saying that was that I took a couple of weeks off work, but you didn't, did you? That was work. Yeah, yeah, That was right. possibly your most productive work. I know, yeah, you're because right. It was your most productive right. creative work, which yeah. then helped you form yeah. this amazing arm of the business. You're right. So it's not, we need to think differently, don't we, about we do. what we think work is, you know, we do. and how you, and how you get it done. And you know, for the creative world, you know, when I, you go to into the see amazing art or you go to listen to brilliant music or, you know, even the cartoonists in the world, the comedians in the world, the creative part of the world, you know, 
they are the ones who are really, for me, I think that the creative world is leading us in the right direction. They're the most powerful voices we're hearing mm. at the moment, the most thoughtful voices we're hearing in different ways. And they're not using skills around problem solving or, you know, problem A, you know, takes you to solution B. They're just opening us in the way that we think mm. um, and the way that we feel about things. So you're exactly right. Work and figuring out, you know, how we heal our profoundly fractured world doesn't have to come from the, it, in fact, it's likely not to come from the tools that we so value in business. Mm. Um, how we chart the fastest course mm. uh, to the most productive solution. It's likely to come from the opposite, from opening our minds and our hearts and our souls. Yeah, that uh, makes perfect sense mm. to me. Um, one final question, um, and this comes from listening to your, your TEDx Byron Bay talk, which people should listen to. Oh no, <laughs> you I, shouldn't do that. Off, I was so nervous. I can't, please don't listen to that, everybody who's listening to this. I <laughs> well, really hated that. I'm going to do it again. In yeah. fact, I met a guy who was on the board of TED and I said to him, I did a terrible TED talk once, I was so bloody nervous. Invite me again you and I'll do a tell. better one. <laughs> no, not tell. Yeah. But the thing is, um, you've done amazing things using the, the power of business. So you've taken, uh, let's, let's just say very, very crudely, traditional business model, and you've used that um, to generate revenue to do um, great things. But my, so my closing question is in terms of trying to inspire others to do similar things and look into the future, is do you think business is capable of greatness? Oh, no question. And in fact, it's better than that. Not only is business capable of greatness, but I actually believe that um, only businesses who do great things for the world will survive into the next decades. Mm -hmm. and, um, so, and that's because we're living in this wonderful age of radical transparency. Business as a sociopath is no longer acceptable. We see that multiple ways that that's expressing itself in society and public anger about business, about yeah. the financial services sector in particular. Um, and, you know, consumers are making choices, regulators are making choices, the top tier talent and staff are making choices all around, does a business do great things in the world? And this was seen, you know, 20 years ago when, when Adara began, this was considered to be the soft science you know oh purpose yeah. yeah that's nice but you know we've got to make money for our shareholders yeah if people don't understand now in the business sector um that this is not soft science this is the hard facts of the new era of expectation on yeah. business they are standing on the train track and the train is bearing down on them yeah so not only is business capable of great things business is going to have to it's going to be expected that a business does great things um if the business wants to survive and that is going to mark a so much better world. Yeah, um, there's a lot to be us. hopeful. There's a lot to be hopeful. There's a for lot to be hopeful and about. And I think it's really important it comes from someone like you who's got that hardcore uh, business background because it can quickly be written off by the doubters or the non-believers as um, as something that's not not really got the substance to carry. But I, I do think we're in the midst of a of a, uh, a real shift. Yeah. Um, and that generations coming through, aided by that transparency, aided by digital technology and the internet. Um, are, are going to be in, in a world, a very different world, where old habits um, just won't actually pass muster, will they? Well, it's over for the dinosaurs. Yeah. And that is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's terrific. Um, I've really, really, really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm sure people enjoy listening to what you have to say, but you've got to go back and do some more great things. <laughs> I do. So I'll have to finish it there. Thanks very and much. Thank you very much. Lovely talking to you. Thank you. 
That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.